Friends, please have a seat. And if I could invite you to please turn back in your Bibles to the portion of Scripture we read together in Luke's Gospel. It was Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. And uh, perhaps especially focusing on those verses from verse 46 to 50. Luke chapter 9 from verse 46, 46 uh, to 50. Now, a while back, it was a few months ago, I mentioned a particular Christian book. Just in passing, I mentioned it in a sermon. I mentioned it a few months ago, and then more recently, Will has also mentioned the same book in a sermon. It is a title by a man called Jerry Bridges, and it is a book called Respectable Sins. Respectable Sins. So you've heard it since both of us are mentioning it. And uh, some of you may have read that title. Uh, But even if you haven't, I'm pretty sure even from the title, you get the idea, don't you? So Bridges takes, in the book, he takes attitudes and behaviors that Christians tend to accept. And what he does is he reminds us actually how the Bible portrays these things. And you can see the intention in the book. The the intention is trying to prompt us to ask whether we should be so accepting of things that clearly displease our God. Everyone follow the idea respect respectable sins. We get it, don't we? Well, this morning at St. Peter's, it's bargain time. Because... In this text that we've got before us, there's one text, and as far as respectable sins are concerned, we are given two for one, aren't we? And this chapter that you will remember is chiefly about discipleship. Here, what the Lord Christ does is he confronts his people with two traps that we can fall into in the Christian life. These are two areas that we are, as Christians, to avoid. Now, what are these two respectable sins? Well, I don't know. Uh, We could, I suppose, call them pride and parochialism. We could entitle them self-conceit and small-mindedness. But I don't want to. This morning, I prefer if we thought more in terms of how you and I view people. I want that to be the lens. How do we approach people? How do we view people? And let me do this. Let me just give you the outline of where we're going to go this morning, God willing. Let me give you the points, the headings. First thing, we're going to think about our outlook on ourselves and a respectable sin that follows. Okay, so our outlook on ourselves. That's number one. Number two, we're going to think about our outlook on other Christians. Not just other people, our outlook on other Christians. That'll be the second place we go. And then thirdly, and rather mundanely, the third heading is a conclusion. I'll explain that when we get there. Okay, so you're with me, you get the outline. First of all, an outlook on ourselves, and I will give you the heads up that we will camp out on that first heading for the majority of the sermon. Okay, so an outlook on ourselves will be there for the main part. Then an outlook on other Christians. How do we view other Christians? Think about that. 
and then, yeah, mundanely, uh, a conclusion. That's our outline. That's where we'll go. That's what we see in this text. Before we, before we get there, join me, please. Let's pray. Let's ask our God to speak to us. Let's ask for help. And Lord, we do not do that, our Heavenly Father, just merely out of habit or routine. Prayer is an expression of need. And how, oh God, we need you, how we need to hear from your word. Would you speak to us, Lord? Would you give us an alertness of mind, but of heart and spirit? Oh Lord, we pray that you would show us more of the gospel, more of your son, and for his glory we pray. Amen. Okay, first of all, what is it? It's our outlook on ourselves, and this is what we'll do. Under this heading, this first heading, what we'll do is we'll think about three A's. A's. And if you do this with me, if you look to verse 46, I think you won't even need me to tell you what that first A is. (laughs) Okay, verse 46. You see what it is? You do, don't you? Luke, interestingly, compared with the the parallel accounts here, he, he is in a hurry. So Luke doesn't furnish us with any geographical details. He does not set the scene in any way, shape, or form. What does he do? What's the first A? He introduces us to, it's an argument, isn't it? And it's an argument amongst the the 12, the disciples, and it's, interestingly, it's an argument about who was the greatest of them. So how does that How does that land with you this morning? What's your first thought about that sort of an argument about amongst the disciples? It is, it jars with us, do you not think? Doesn't it seem rather ugly that that's the topic of discussion? I think part of the reason for the ugliness of this is the timing of the disciples' dispute. Were you here last week? Can you remember what we saw. So Jesus has just this moment reminded those men that he is soon to face suffering. He has just reminded them a moment ago that he is to face death for his people. And what's the first response? It is ugly, isn't it? The first response is for these disciples to be taken up, concerned with their own honor and their own positioning. It is it's, it's fierce, it's, it's ugly. Now, I'm saying it's, it's wrong, it jars with us, and I'm sure that it does. But at the same time, I want to add to that that perhaps you and I should not be entirely surprised with this argument. Now, let me unpack that, open it up. Let me give you a few reasons why we perhaps should not be surprised at their arguing. One, it shouldn't surprise us because of the transfiguration now, we all, we all can remember that event, can't we? That, that beautiful event. But do you remember what happened in that event? Do you remember that the, the disciples were split apart? And there's only three of them that were, were taken up the, the mountain to, to enjoy this, this, this glorious experience. What about the other nine? The other nine are at the foot of the mountain and they're having to squabble with the scribes. Can you see? Perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that that has led to this heated argument about which one of them is most favored. That's the first reason. The second reason that shouldn't surprise us is because of the, the tone 
of the society of the time. See, if you know anything about Judaism and Jewish culture in the first century, what do you know? You know the ideas of greatness, prestige, honor, favor were really uppermost, paramount in that society. Do you remember what was all important at a wedding in the first century? What was it? Where people were seated. What was important in meals and especially public meals? The seat and the position of honor. So perhaps reading this argument, reading this, of all of this, we shouldn't be surprised that that sort of cultural honor value system has kind of infiltrated the 12 and that is the way that they're thinking. So perhaps that's another reason. I'll give you the third and the last reason. Why should this argument not surprise us? I don't think it should surprise us because of your own heart and my own heart. It perhaps shouldn't surprise us to to see pride become an issue for these men. Because isn't it the case, Christian friend, that you and I know something of that respectable sin in our own heart, in our own life? And I would just ask you to pause and think about it before God. Isn't Isn't it the case that really and quite secretly you and I do often find ourselves, as the disciples, seeking to compare ourselves with others. We inflate ourselves. We can criticize other people. Isn't that right? We like attention. We like recognition. Isn't there this, it's a contradiction, I think, almost a paradox in the Christian life. Because a lot of the time, you and I will, will recognize that, oh, we are the worst of sinners. We'll say that with Paul readily. We're the worst of sinners. And then there's other occasions where we see ourselves as better than our fellow man. What do we see here? There's an argument, first day. Then we can move, right? Second day, we move from the argument to this visual aid that we see. Because at this moment, a child, isn't it intriguing? A child is plonked onto the scene. Now, if we're going to understand how our Lord responds to this bickering, this arguing, this dispute amongst the disciples, I think, St. Peter's, what we're going to have to do is just very briefly remind ourselves how children were viewed in the ancient world. Now, we've done that recently, haven't we? So I don't think we've got to spend an awful lot of time in this. But I think it's it's helpful to refresh our, our memories. So how are children thought about today? In Scottish society, what do you see? You know, children can rule the roost, can't they? A lot of decisions in, in a household can be made just like, what does, the, what does the kid want to do? You know, the, a child can be idolized in, in society. What we have to, if we're going to understand, what we have to understand is that it was the polar opposite to that in, in the first century world. And I could, I could stand here before you and I could kind of try and describe that. It might be more effective to read you a, a quote from the time. I'm going to try not to laugh at this because it's not funny, it's sad, but here it is. So this is a, a contemporary Jewish source. Now you were thinking, how did they view kids? You ready for this? So this is what he writes. He writes this. Sleeping through the morning 
or drinking wine at midday or speaking to children. These are the things that destroy a man. <laughs> what an outlook. I'll say it again. Sleeping through the morning, drinking wine at midday or speaking with children. These are the things that destroy a man. You can see though, can't you, from that, like children were viewed really a total waste of space. Like children were to be avoided. Children were to be ignored. They're very much on the fringes of everything. And now let's look at verse 47 and verse 48. What does Jesus do? Now you can imagine how this silences their bickering. He hears them arguing about greatness. Jesus takes a little child and, and what does he do? It's not so much in the middle. He has the child right beside him. So Jesus is standing with the child side by side. What does he say? Would you read it with me? Jesus says to the 12, and whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Are we hearing our Lord? What is Jesus saying? He is not saying to his people, you've got to be like the child. Jesus is saying, no, follow my example here, isn't he? He's saying, follow my lead. Friends, if we want to be recognized as great in the eyes of the one who truly counts, then the people of God, we are to associate with the seemingly unimportant people of this world. I hope you're hearing that for your own life. If we want to be recognized as great in Christ's sight, the eyes that only matter, then pride has to die in your life. And there has to be a humility that shows itself in care for who? For the unloved and unlovable people. That's the big idea of these verses here. So we see a, a humility. But before you and I, I don't know, think about, try and think about this practically and exactly for our lives, I'm, I'm going to ask you as a, as a congregation to do something with me. I wonder if we can look together at verses 46 to 50. That's the whole thing. And I know it's going to be a tight squeeze, but yet we've managed to get it up on the screen. This is what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you to quickly zoom over that text, to, to skim read it, and to try and pick out what might be the most important phrase in this text. Skim read it. I'll give you a moment. What's the most important phrase here? You see that the eagle-eyed amongst you have got it. Do you notice there's something that's repeated? Do you see that verse 48 and verse 49? We'll see it in a moment, you know, exercising demons in your name. And then return with me to Jesus and the child. What does Jesus say? He doesn't just say, whoever receives this child receives me. What does Jesus actually say? Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. I hope every one of us sees how vital and important that is, do you? Because what we have before us in this text, when it comes to humility here, and this called humility, it is not moralism. Like Jesus is not saying, if any people out there, if they will welcome the marginalized and the oppressed person, they're earning that the favor of God is not that message. This is not moralism. 
This is about acting for the glory, for the sake and for the honor of Jesus. Friends, do you follow? This is about the people of God acting from a position of faith, acting out of gratitude to Jesus, acting to care for the unloved, but doing it for Jesus, doing it out of love for him. And so what can we do? I think we can move quickly to our third A and to some application. And I wonder, if I, if I were at this point to turn it over to you, what would you do with this? Like, you, you have this text before. You, you, you hear the call for humility. How should this change your life exactly? How should it change my life? Where would you go? I, I wonder, Christian friend, would you go and say, would you go straight to prayer? If you were, I would stand with you. Like, I, I really think what we're seeing here should lead to us asking God to show us more of our pride It's an uncomfortable prayer, isn't it? And then we confess that and ask God in prayer to to help us to change. Definitely, there should be an application for prayer. Would you agree there also needs to be practice? I'm going to read you an uncomfortable uh, phrase. Uh, I read this. this. This one line's a short line, but it's helpful, I think, and I want you to think about it for your own life. So this chap, he spends a lot of time studying the verses that we have just studied. And he's working on it, and he comes to a conclusion. And this is what he says. On the back of what we've just heard, he says this. Listen for your own life. He says, true spiritual greatness is evidently determined by the company that Christians keep. Think about it for your own life, my life. I'll read it again. True spiritual greatness is evidently determined by the company Christians keep. What is the direct application of this text? Perhaps you and I should go into the week and evaluate the way we're living and evaluate who is it that we are actually associating with in light of Jesus' words here. like Who who is it that we are showing hospitality to? Who is it that we're reaching out to in love? Because Christ is calling to his people for humility. And it's a humility that acts. And it's a humility that follows his example. And what example is that? Oh, you look at Jesus. And he dined with the unlovable people, didn't he? And Jesus is the one that touched the untouchable people of society. And ultimately, what did Jesus do? The one who was great, truly great, humbled himself, became obedient to death and even death on a cross. We see here an outlook on ourselves. Secondly, what was it? Our outlook on other Christians. This past week, uh, Will and I, on our way way back from a, a meeting in Edinburgh, driving along and we were having a discussion about books uh, I've made us sound like geeks straight away well we are yes speak for yourself Will we were talking about literature talking about books and I had to confess to Will that uh, presently last thing at night what I'm doing is I'm reading old spy novels 
um, you know, sort of Eric Ambler, Graham Greens, that sort of stuff, old spy novels. It's a way of trying to wind down at the end of the evening, right? So that's what I'm doing. You'll find me reading all these spy novels. And I am increasingly believing that all of life is sermon preparation for a minister. Because in these spy novels, I wonder if God has been preparing me for where we go next and this little next section of Scripture. Can you look at it with me? Look at verse 49. Let's put that up. John speaks up, and he mentions, you'll see my my spy hat on, he mentions a shadowy figure, doesn't he? Isn't that an intriguing figure in verse 49, a mysterious figure? It's someone that one writer calls a freelance exorcist. A freelance exorcist is mentioned. Now, keeping that most important phrase that we mentioned, keeping that in view, would you consider what this mysterious character is actually doing? Because you're with me, aren't you? When I say to you, he is not simply exercising spirits. What does it say? He is doing this in Jesus' name. Now, does that change everything for us? I think it does. Who's this mysterious character? Listen, he's a believer. So this mysterious exorcist is someone who has, he's heard the good news. He is someone who has responded to the good news. This character that we're thinking about, he is obviously going around proclaiming Jesus. And how is he acting? He's acting to free people from the shackles and the bondage of demon possession. Now, in a sense, it seems wonderful to us, but hang on. (laughs) Because this mysterious character has not aligned himself to the 12, because he's not conforming to their ideas... Did you notice how the disciples act? What did they do? They try to stop this character. I I hope that everybody who has been here recently can see the irony that we have right now. Do you see the irony if you were here last week? (laughs) The disciples, the very disciples who last week were failing to exercise a demon, this week are trying to stop somebody who can do this in Jesus' name, and it looks like they're even failing to stop him, failing to do that. Now, move with me to verse 50. Let's look at verse 50. Jesus responds to these disciples, and look what he does. He tells them, do not stop this man. Christian friend, I think from that we are given for St. Peter's, and for, for the Christian church in the 21st century. From Jesus' words there, I think we're given a a vital lesson. Because surely we see here that you and I are not to be parochial as Christians. Isn't that the lesson here? You and I are not to be too narrow in our attitude towards other believers. Like evidently, it displeases our Lord to see his people condemning Christian work just because it doesn't fit with our set ideas about how things should be done. It says, but don't be too narrow here. Now, before we go any further, of course, you know, I've got to hold the reins a little bit for myself, and surely there has to be a caveat thrown in here. Because what has been called for by our Lord is not a wishy-washy 
sort of diluted ecumenism. Do you follow? This is not about the people of God compromising over doctrine. The call here is absolutely not that gospel truth should be discarded just to allow us to stand next to people who might call themselves Christians, but at the same time would deny scriptural truth. That is not what we have here. This is not about compromising over doctrine. But I hope and I've prayed that we'd all see what it is. This is a call to a generosity of spirit. How does that land for us? This is a call for us to be charitable towards other types or tribes of Christians, those who are seeking really genuinely to honor Jesus as the king of kings, but just going about their gospel work in a different way to to us. And I I wonder this morning, if you'll just allow me to try, because I think it's such an important point for us. Let me try to illustrate it. Um, Lots of you will have heard the, the name John Flavel. Do you know that name? And I know at the door, people are going to say it's John Flavel. (laughs) But I'm going to go with John Flavel this morning. John Flavel was 17th century uh, Presbyterian English minister. Flavel, in one of his works, he, he speaks about the time that he was invited to a rich farmer's house for a pastoral visit. Okay? Flavel out to a rich farmer's house. And he goes out to this farmer's house and, uh, and uh, the farmer wants to show him around the grounds. I think it's a nice day. He wants to go out for a wander around the grounds. So Flavel's like, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so first of all, they start in the gardens. Out they go out into the gardens. And Flavel's amazed, you know. And he's amazed by the beauty of the flowers. He's amazed by the colors. Do you know what strikes him most? The orderliness of it all. It was all, all these flower beds were arranged beautifully. He's loving this. And then it continues, and through an archway they go, and the farmer takes him out to all these massive acres of orchards. And you know what orchards are like? Strikes Flavel that these orchards are just beautifully arranged, you know? Like you've seen them, haven't you? You know, like rows and rows of apple trees that are just precise, and line after line after line. It's so orderly, beautiful. Then Flavel does it. He turns around to the side. What does he see? Flavel sees one ugly brute of a tree. And this tree is off to the side. And this tree is the only tree that is not in a perfect line. And for Flavel, he's just thinking, this is... This is a mystery. This is ruining the aesthetic. Everything's beautiful. Everything is orderly except this one tree. So, so Flavel turns to the farmer and he says, excuse me, um, why on earth have you not cut that tree down? I mean, it's ruining everything here. It's ruining the aesthetic. Everything's beautiful. Why have you not cut that tree down? The farmer says this. Listen. The farmer says to Flavel, good sir, the reason I do not cut that tree down is that because of all of my trees, it bears the most fruit. It might not be conforming. It might seem out of place. Of all of my trees, it bears the most fruit. And Flavel, from that took a very important spiritual lesson. And it's a spiritual lesson faced with this text. It would do well for us to take the spiritual lesson theme. Because it's not 
how we conform to other Christians. What's the crucial issue? Bearing fruit, bearing fruit for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I talked about irony a moment ago with the disciples. Is there not an irony, a mistake here that we could easily make? Because faced with this topic, do you know what, what our hearts want to do? We won't, with this mistake, we want to point our finger at other people. Don't we? Isn't that what we want to do? And, and it's easy to do it. Like we see this harshness towards other Christians, and we see it so evidently and clearly in some areas of Christianity, especially in some parts of the United States, don't we? Like certain brands of reformed Christianity, very antagonistic and critical of wider evangelicalism. We see it with Baptists against Presbyterians. We see it with Presbyterians against Baptists. Don't we? And there's something about, ironically, that was to, to point, if they're doing this, they're... No. What matters this morning? What matters is St. Peter's. What matters this morning is, is your heart and, and mine. And so I would ask you, what about us? And I'll ask you, what about you? Like, are, are you quick to condemn other believers? Are you quick to criticize other denominations, other types of believers? Are you quick to, to criticize people in your own congregation for the way that they work seeking to honor Jesus? Please see in this text, it's not respectable sin, as if there could be such a thing. See here that it displeases the Lord Jesus Christ. And can we not, as a church, run after the attitude of the Apostle Paul. Now, do you remember Paul's attitude? He is faced, remember in Philippi, he is faced with a variety of work. And what is Paul's only concern? We ask Paul, what is your concern, Philippians? He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. So we see our outlook and ourselves, our outlook and others, and very briefly in it, uh, to end, we see, what was that mundane heading? It was a conclusion, a conclusion. It does sound strange, doesn't it? Ministers usually spend hours working out what is an effective heading, and here I come on a Sunday morning with a conclusion. There's more thought behind it than you might uh, first imagine because I mean a conclusion in a number of different ways. I, I mean it perhaps even in three different ways. Number one, obviously I mean it that this is the conclusion of our sermon. Okay, so we end with this. Need, you need not panic. Of course, I mean it's a conclusion. We come into land with this. I mean that. What I would love you also to, to recognize is that this is the conclusion to our rather long sermon series that we've had in the gospel according to Luke. We end our sermon series now, here, this morning. Let me remind you of the structure of the first part of Luke's gospel. Let me do that. So I was going to say that Luke's gospel begins in chapter 1. We all picked that one up. But from chapter 1 through to chapter 4 and verse 13, what we find are the infancy narratives of the Lord Jesus, 
from chapter 1 to 4.13. So you've got the birth of Jesus. And remember those accounts? Can you remember the accounts of Mary with Elizabeth? And the accounts of Simeon and Anna and so forth? You have the infancy narratives. Then something happens in chapter 4 and verse 14. In chapter 4 and verse 14, Jesus' ministry starts properly. And from that point, chapter 4, 14, right through to where you and I are this morning, Jesus is in and around Galilee. Primarily, what is he doing? But he is preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And then now, this morning, in this text or just after, something happens. I wonder if you'd look at verse 51 to see what it is. Look at verse 51. Here there's a change. And from verse 51, Jesus actually turns away from Galilee. After all that he's done in this part of the world, he turns away from Galilee. And what does he do? He turns towards Jerusalem. Do you see that there is a hinge in Luke's gospel at this point? There is a, a distinct change. Jesus turns away from Galilee. And where does he turn to? He turns his face towards the cross and to Calvary. And so because there's this hinge, this natural change at this point, we're going to leave Luke's gospel for the time being as the congregation over the next couple of weeks, we're going to, or next few months and so forth. We're going to go to other places in scripture, so forth. As we do that, I want to say two things. One, first, let me speak to the, the Christian, the child of God in here. Wow, we've seen a lot in Luke's gospel, haven't we? I was looking at this, I was trying to find out, and I, uh, I think we began the sermon series in October of uh, 2022. And so 40 odd sermons from Bethlehem to John the Baptist and through Nazareth to the to widow of Nain, we've seen so much material. My question for you, if you're a Christian, is can you remember God's purpose in giving this to you? Do you remember Theophilus? God has given us all of that material, all of these sections, all of these chapters that you might have certainty in Jesus Christ, that your faith, that your assurance might be strengthened as you study it. Can we not at least end this sermon series praising God for his kindness, that he's given us all of these sections. He's given us Luke's gospel to show us more of the person and the work of his son. But then the second thing is just a word for those in here or those who are tuning in online who are yet to have trusted in Jesus Christ. Now, now, wait, please think about that for your own life. Are you yet to be trusting in Jesus? I'd ask you to take into view the big question of Luke's gospel. So there's Luke 1 right through to where we are. What question has been addressed and answered here is this. It's the question, who then is this Jesus? And we've heard so much about that, read so much about who, who this Jesus is. But even this morning, in this short text, are you not given insight? Have a look at verse 48 with me. 
Look at this. With this, we really do close. Jesus takes that child. You remember the child. Jesus says, whoever receives the child in my name receives me. What does he go on to say? Listen, if you do not believe, listen. He says, whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Friend, do you see it here again? We are shown the identity, the importance of Jesus of Nazareth. Who is he? He is the only way to God. Jesus of Nazareth is the only way to be reconciled and received by God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So what was my mundane head in? A conclusion? I ask, if you came into this building this morning and your faith wasn't in Christ, I implore you to draw the correct conclusion about the identity of Jesus. Who is he? He really is the son of God. Peter, Peter was correct. He is the Christ of God, the suffering one. He really would go to Jerusalem. He really would turn his father's wrath, our sin, away from us onto him. Would you adopt this morning the correct outlook on Jesus Christ? Would you this morning look to him? Look to him in faith. Believe. Trust in him. For more than all of those 12 apostles, those disciples, Jesus Christ is worthy of all honor. Jesus alone is truly great. This from Luke's gospel. This is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the King of Kings. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray.